Hello and welcome to The Rewriters, a celebration of people who have shirked convention, expectation and even their own limitation to rewrite their story on their terms. Each episode will dig into the inspired and very real life stories of people who have done just that, rewritten their story. I'm a nosy practical optimist too, so expect all of the nitty gritty details. If you're an ambitious seeker craving a different kind of lifestyle, career or business, but have felt held back by your own or other people's beliefs about what's possible or permissible, The Rewriters is for you. Welcome to the episode. I'm Monique Shaw and today's rewriter is Nilesh Dosa. There are so many threads to Nilesh's story. He's an entrepreneur, he has a corporate career, and he's also the founder of a not-for-profit called I Can, You Can Too, which works to level the career playing fields for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds in London. Nilesh himself grew up on a council estate in London, and he was raised with the belief that education and achievement was his way out. He went to university, got a first, graduated top of his business school, and got onto a prestigious graduate program at one of the top accounting firms in the world. It was here that he really experienced for the first time being an outsider and realized that with all of his academic achievements and educational success, he was really unprepared for the world that he'd entered. Over the next 10 years, the narrative that he had absorbed about wealth and status slowly unraveled and it eventually broke him and broke him wide open. I am so inspired by Nilesh and the work that he does, and I'm really excited to bring this story to you. Now, a word of warning, some of the sound quality is pretty poor at times. The good news is it's actually my record, which sounds at times like I'm screaming at a microphone from inside a tin can. Um, I've discovered that my gain was up too loud. So apologies, but please bear with it because the person you're going to be hearing from the most is Nilesh. He speaks for about 90% of the time and he sounds great and his story is awesome. If you like it, please do rate and review in iTunes and share it with your mates, share it on social media, hashtag the rewriters pod. And if you want to learn more about Nilesh and the work that he does, and indeed, if you want to get involved, check out the show notes too. I'm going to put some links there on how you can get in touch with him directly and learn about his work. And you can also learn learn how to work with me. I work with people one-to-one and on group coaching programs all over the world, helping people to rewrite their story. Okay, so on to the episode. Having had the pleasure of knowing you for a couple of years now, Nilesh, when I was prepping for this interview, I was thinking, where do I start? There are so many different threads to your story and so many different routes in. So really to kick things off, I'd love to hear in your words, who are you, Nilesh, and what would you like people to know about your story? Um, well, look, Monique, firstly, let me start by saying by saying thank you. I think, you know, as I've been preparing for this podcast and, and the, the, the opportunity to talk to you, um, I think it's, a hu- innate, it's an innate human desire, right, to be able to share your story and, 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 and to tell people about your life and you know, I'm super grateful that you're giving me, you know, the rewrite platform to, to share mine with others. So look, start by saying a huge thank you. I'm really, really, you know, really proud that you've asked me and just looking forward to spending this hour hanging out with you um, and having a bit of a conversation. So in terms of introduction, I suppose, let me do, let me do the corporate one first, right? Because I suppose we're going to talk a lot more about who I am in a moment. So I'm Nilesh, um, and I'm a banking and finance guy, trained chartered accountant who spent 15 years in finance, banking, and professional services. I, I suppose I now straddle this unique 
space where, you know, I've worked for two out of the big four. I've worked for two global banks. But I also now work with some of the most disadvantaged, underprivileged and socially deprived young people in London. Uh, and, I'll, and as I said, I'll tell you a little bit about that a little later. And I suppose my typical week is spent half on my, my career still at EY. But I also run two companies. You know, one is a for-profit um, called Maths 2020, which looks to help young people from deprived backgrounds with maths. And the other one is a not-for-profit called I Can, You Can Too, which is all about inspiring young people from disadvantaged backgrounds again with the skills, the role models that they'll need to go on and enjoy either further education or, you know, a professional career. But also, Monique, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband uh, for, and, and I have been for 12 years and, and married to, to Hemel, who's an optician. But, you know, for the last few years, she spent her time bringing up our daughter. And that leads me on nicely to, to the fact that I'm a father and a proud dad. And we have a seven-year-old uh, called Mahi, who this morning told me to tell everybody that she's not seven years, but she's actually seven years and three months. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit of an overview about me. Fantastic. So I definitely remember meeting you, or, or rather I didn't meet you initially. I was hearing you speak, and you were talking to a group of senior managers at EY, where you still work and I, I previously worked. And you were talking about this work that you do with I Can, You Can Too. And it's now three years later and I've been working with you since then because the, the work that you do is so important and the story that you tell is so gripping. There were two moments that you described in that story that were so visceral and just kind of took me into your world and your experience. And I wondered if we could explore that a little bit. So you spoke about Rocking up for your first day in your um, in your new job in a brown suit and the knives and forks. Yeah, I'm never going to live those stories down, am I? Um, <laughs> so, joking aside, they were they were definitely the moments that planted a seed in my mind. But Monique, if it's okay, let me go back just a little bit before that because I think what it does is it will set the context for. For, for, for those stories. So, you know, I'm the son of migrants, Monique, and, you know, I grew up in council housing and times were tough financially. Um, and what I always say is that it was just a happy, ordinary childhood, you know. Um, and I've used this comment a lot, which is, you know, there's this saying that goes around about privilege is invisible to those that have it. But actually, I think the opposite is also true, which is non-privilege is invisible to those that have it. Um, so for me and my community and my upbringing, you know, that was pretty normal, what I've just described. But as, as an Indian, um, academics was going to be my ticket out. And that was the mindset that I was, was brought up with. Um, and I still see that same mindset now, actually, if I'm honest. Um, and I subscribed to it absolutely, right? So I dedicated myself to my academics, did well at school um, and, and, and at university, as you, as you mentioned a moment ago, Monique. So, you know, I went to university and studied finance. I got a first um, and, and actually topped the business school. So 
And the reason for mentioning is that is literally a couple of months later, I started at, at KPMG. Um, and, and now I'm back to, you know, I've caught up in terms of time to what you've mentioned, Monique, a moment ago. So, you know, I turned up, I remember walking into, into the Birmingham office, which is where I went to university and did my training for chartered accountancy. And I turned up in this brown colored suit. And, you know, I remember looking around in, in the sort of foyer and thinking, you know, how come I look so different to everybody else? But didn't think too much of it, actually, um, until, you know, throughout the day, I noticed the people around me making, you know, I suppose what we now call water cooler conversation. Um, and again, felt, hmm, how come everybody around me seems to know how to make this type of conversation and I don't? And then the other story that you mentioned happened in the evening. So the partners and the directors took us out for dinner. Um, and I didn't know what to do with my knives and forks. And I think it'd been a whole day of this feeling of being inadequate and, and feeling like an imposter that, I, you know, I remember 10 minutes into that dinner, going into the sort of bathroom, needing a break and, you know, bursting out into tears because there was this real big moment of, I thought I was ready for this and I thought I was prepared for this, but how come I'm so ill-prepared and why do I feel so inadequate? Um, and that's when it planted the seed in my mind that my upbringing and the sort of demographic, the kinds of people that I'd grown up with, despite being academically strong, hadn't got me prepared for the world that I'd now entered. Um, so yeah, Monique, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's bringing to life a little bit of that, what you referred to in your question. Does that, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And that point that you made there about privilege being invisible to those that have it and also non-privilege or a lack of privilege being invisible to those who have it, there is definitely something that happens with these invisible symbols or signifiers of being inside or outside you know everybody being able to have the, the the cool calm chat over the water cooler nobody else wearing the brown suit everybody knowing how to use the knives and forks they seem subtle but they're really really stark when you're the one that suddenly goes oh okay there's something that you all know that i i, I don't know and i wasn't privy to yeah yeah absolutely right and also just how many people knew and i was the only one it felt like. So in my intake, I remember pretty clearly that there were a hundred of us that joined KPMG on their um, grad program. And I think apart from myself and one other lad who was a Muslim lad, um, you know, the other 98 were all, you know, to be honest, they were all white. Um, and it definitely felt like um, Wahid, who was the other chap, and myself were the two outsiders. And all of these experiences compound, right? So I remember, and I've shared this story quite a lot during some of the work that I've been doing as a result of the Black Lives Matter campaign, but I remember really clearly being asked if people could give me a sort of English name because Nilesh felt too hard to pronounce. And so what happens is you have just lots of these moments compounding where everything's kind of saying to you, you know, you don't belong here. 
um, or at least that's how I felt. Not not that no, not that anybody said that explicitly, but that's just how I felt. Yeah, yeah. How long after, and actually, sort of having followed the the path set out for you by your parents, you know, education was your way out, topping your class, getting onto the grad program, feeling that you were an outsider. Can you tell me how you got from kind of that moment to becoming an entrepreneur, starting a not-for-profit, but also retaining that corporate career as well, having three careers at, at the same time? What was the what was the thing that really set you on that path? Um, it's a really really good question, Monique. Um, if I if I'm honest, I think there's something in my in my upbringing in my childhood. And, and, you know, I've, you know, when you get to, as you get older and as you become more mature, Monique, you know, I think you spend a lot more time reflecting on your decisions, why you did certain things, et cetera, et cetera, right? And if I'm honest, I think there's always been inside, something inside of me around poverty, injustice, inequality. Um, and I know that there's a few stories that I could share, but, you know, just go with me for a moment, you know, because at every stage of my, of my life from from when I was at sixth form, actually, you know, I've worked with young people in some way, shape or form, and especially young people with disability, young people with, you know, what, what we've called this sort of difficult upbringing and an upbringing that I could relate to myself. Um, but if I park that for a second and, and, and sort of come to your question directly, Monique, I think I spent 10 years, I would say, from sort of 2003, 4, 5, that sort of period to about 2014, 15, 16, where despite always feeling like this outsider and continuing to feel like this outsider, you know, I think what I did is I suppressed that voice inside that said, you know, listen, man, if you don't feel like this is working for you or you don't feel like you're fitting in, why don't you go and have the courage to do something else? Why don't you? go and follow what it is that you really want to do, which is work with children in some way, shape or form. And for 10 years, 12 years, that sort of number, um, I felt that what I would do is become, you know, that, that narrative that I, I explained to you that you buy into that, I'll become rich, I'll become senior, and then I'll make a change, or then I'll go and do something a little bit more full time. Um, because on the side, I'd always continued, whether it was a little bit of tutoring with maths, because, you know, that's a subject that I've loved and have been good at, or whether it was working with other charities that tried to sort of bring these sort of skills uh, to young people. And then in 2015, 16, I think there was a bit of a perfect storm. So let me take you through some of the reasons um, and, and, and actually what happened. So the first thing is that in 2013, I became a dad. And, you know, I felt super proud, super happy. And I remember thinking, you know, what is it that I can do to make this little one proud of me one day? Another thing that happened was I was diagnosed with a condition called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, Monique. Um, and this condition has no cure and it has no medicine. And... I remember the, the, you know, having all the tests done and my consultant saying to me that, you know, Nilesh, one day you may end up in a wheelchair. 
And, you know, I'm not going to lie, that really, really scared me. And to be honest, it still scares me. Um, and as I said to you, the third thing was that I'd continued working with young people in some capacity on the side. And in 2016, I'd gone and done this assembly. Um, sorry. Yeah, in 2016, my bad. Uh, yeah, definitely. 2016, I'd gone and done this assembly to um, the entire sixth form at my old secondary school in Newham. And the assembly was called, if I can do it, you can do it too. And I did this assembly, felt really happy, right, to be able to go back 25 odd years later and step into the same building that I'd grown up in. And that feeling of giving something back felt really nice. And anyway, as I walked out, this young black boy, Joshua, a, a, a Nigerian boy, he followed me out and said, you know, Nilesh, will you mentor me? And I sort of, yeah, absolutely, buddy, no problem. You know, go and enjoy your summer holiday and come back and I'll meet you um, in Canary Wharf. And he said, will I be allowed to come to Canary Wharf? And I said, you know, Joshua, I kind of laughed, right? Because I thought it was he was joking. Um, and he said, yeah, because I thought I wouldn't be allowed to come. And I sort of joked with him again and said, well, dude, why wouldn't you be allowed to come? And he said, because I thought all black people in Canary Wharf were either security guards or working in the canteen. And I didn't think someone like me would be allowed into the offices. And I remember, I remember very, very clearly looking at this boy as, as if he was my own child. And because by then, remember, I was a dad, right? So I looked at this kid and I was like, how do I how do I unhear this? How do I pretend that that hasn't just happened in front of me? And how will I ever go back home and look at my own daughter and say, you know, sweetheart, I'd do anything for you because here's a child. Yeah, albeit he's not my child, but he's still a child, right? And he's just said to me he doesn't think he's allowed to come to Canary Wharf because he's black. And that led to, you know, me having a mental health and, and a sort of breakdown. And it wasn't just that incident. It was a culmination of this dissatisfaction with work. And I really felt that the narrative that I told myself around, you know, money and power didn't, just didn't, it's just not what I wanted anymore. Um, as I said, I'd become a dad. I'd been diagnosed with this condition that may put me in a wheelchair one day. And I just heard this young boy say he thought he wasn't allowed to come to Canary Wharf. Um, and that, you know, led to depression, actually, Monique. And, you know, I had several months off work with just this inability to shift this feeling of just being in a ditch. You know, there were there were several days when I didn't get out of bed. Um, and all the time it was this these thoughts and feelings that consumed me that every part of me wanted to go and work with children. But then there was every there was another part of me that was scared to admit it because, you know, and there's no doubting this, right, that when we look at social media, you know, and we look at the world around us, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking Harvey Specter out of suits, right? I think the world really glamorizes this powerful, sexy, 
you know, a ruthless individual. And I was in that world and I was scared and embarrassed to say I didn't want it anymore. And that that inability to admit it out aloud, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not ashamed to say it broke me. And therein, I suppose, Monique lies where where the change started because you know the only way that I could feel the only way I managed to work myself out of this depression was to basically take a 40% pay cut which I did in 2017 um so that I could have more time to work in the community and work with children mm. what I find so powerful about that story and I can relate to elements of it myself that voice that was saying to you by the sounds of it for 10 plus years mm, this might not be it I'm not sure that you were you know kind of pushing down maybe ignoring maybe satisfying a little bit by a bit of work here and a bit of work there you know tutoring speaking at assemblies but still plowing on and ignoring that voice until it, it literally refused to be unheard anymore and the way that you described your inability to say it out aloud literally broke you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you were talking there, Monique, I can remember things like my father, you know, when I was a kid growing up saying, Nilesh, you're the eldest. It will take you to sacrifice. You may have to do work that you don't want to do so that you can then build a platform for future generations. And I remember thinking, you know, taking a step like this, I'll be letting my family down. I remember when mm. I met my now wife, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was in banking and when I'd met her and, you know, when you're young, you do all this, right? Where you go, one day I'm going to be a managing director, sweetheart. I'm going to be, we're going to be able to buy this. I'm going to be able to do that. We're going to go on these holidays, et cetera, et cetera. And now all of a sudden there I was kind of saying, I want to go off and work with kids, right? Um, and as I say, I felt decapitated, right? I just didn't feel strong enough to say it out aloud despite knowing that that's really all I've ever wanted to do. Um, and it's funny, right? Because when you look at your past, Monique, as I said a moment ago, when I was at school, and some of the listeners may relate to this. I was in that generation where you have to go and do work experience in year 10. And I did mine at a school, believe it or not. So <laughs> with kids, even in my childhood is what I wanted to do. But I bought into this narrative around wealth and status and money. Um, and look, I don't begrudge my parents, for example, for bringing me up on that narrative. You know, when you... When you are in a so I remember when I was a kid, you know, I didn't sleep on a bed until I was 14. I didn't have, we didn't have, we didn't have, sorry, central heating until I was like 16. You know, we all slept on the floor in one room, the, the four of us, so mum, dad, myself. And so I understand why they pushed me. But mm. at some stage, I realized that it wasn't the life that I wanted. But that, that inability, as I say, of being able to make that choice is 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 ultimately what broke me and I, and I you know the analogy that I've used often is it's like a lego building right I built this lego building and what depression forced me to do 
and the counseling and the psychiatric help, etc., is to break that building down into the fundamental pieces of that building and then build back um, and build back even the bits of me that I didn't like and the bits of me that I'd become to 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 to, to mm. new structure in in a way that it was something that I a life that I wanted to live basically. So can you remember the moment you were able to speak it out aloud to say and own what you wanted to do and start to you know rebuild that brick by brick? Yeah, I can actually. Um I suppose for me it got to a point where I'd, I'd come to the end of the line with that. And I remember one day sort of waking up and saying to, to my wife, Hemel, that if children is what I want to do, if, what, if that's the space that I want to work in, what is it that I can do there? And it was definitely something around maths and numbers and something around mentoring and coaching. And what I said to Hemel was that I wanted a year, a year, 12 to 18 months to give it a go. And <laughs> we've, we've just been joking about this at the weekend. So it depends whose version you believe, right? Um, I, I really believe that I had a conversation with her about it, but she seems to think that I didn't. And I told her that I'm going down to three days. But anyway, you know, pick your sides. And ultimately, you know, that's, that's what we did, Monique, right? So in, you know, 20, back end of 2017, what, what we agreed was that I was going to go down to three days a week at EY. Um, and what that would do is give me those two days plus the two days of obviously the weekend to start designing and building something. And what I decided is that I would go and follow those two passions, right? So one would be something in the maths and number space. And the other thing would be something in the mentoring and coaching space. And, you know, this word again, entrepreneur, startup, you know, every time I think of it, I think of people like Elon Musk, right? And the bit that people don't see is, is the, just the sheer amount of hours that you've got to put in taking risks, you know, grafting, being rejected. So I remember spending hours and hours and hours throughout the back end of 2017 and 2018 in the local library, actually, where I spent, as I say, lots and lots of time just designing a math program and, for want of a better term, then trying to pitch it and sell it to schools. And the same with the coaching program. Um, you know, I can, you can too. The notion was very simple, right? How could I go out to a bunch of kids and take them through and bring them through a program which would give them the skills that would mean that they didn't rock up to their interview in a brown suit, not knowing what to do with their knives and forks. And, and you know, more broadly, how would they be able to write a presentation? How would they write a CV? How would they shake hands? What was personal branding, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it all, you know, at, at some point I'd had enough of feeling down and, you know, admitting it to myself and then admitting it to my wife and then taking the paper and then just giving it a go, really. But I'm curious to know the nuts and bolts of how you got, you went from knowing that you wanted to work with kids, one of it was got, one element was going to be maths and numbers, and another element was going to be the coaching and mentoring. 
what was the step to get from those two truths to, you know, a, a for-profit business and a not-for-profit um, organization ready to go? Were you, did you have a clear idea of what you were going for when you set out? Did you follow your nose? How did you go about that process? Was it, and also, was it the same for the for-profit and the not-for-profit or was it different? No, I think I think it's a fantastic question, and and if I'm honest, the answer is ten percent of it I knew. The other ninety percent of it, I trusted my gut. I trusted my instinct. As you said, I went with my nose. So let let me focus on one of them because really the same sort of principles have applied, right? So if I focus on I can you can too, I can you can too has always been about and will always be about the children. And they're a group of children that I understand well because I was one of them, right? And how did we translate? So it started with this simple desire born out of an absolute belief that kids from these areas, so I'm talking Newham, I'm talking Tower Hamlets, I'm talking Redbridge, Barking. What I wanted to do was to be able to take these youngsters to, to first inspire them and, and, and create a mechanism through which we could eliminate their limiting beliefs. And then what I believed is that what you'd be doing is you'd be pushing on an open door, right? So once these young people were inspired, then what you would do is you would coach them the skills that we knew that they weren't being taught at school. So as I said, writing presentations, writing a CV, etc., etc. So what we did is effectively created a syllabus. Um, and that syllabus, we, you know, we did a bunch of research. We, we, we looked at around ourselves, what are the skills that you would need? What skills did I need, right? So what was the process to get into EY, for example? And understanding that EY being a top firm, if their process was A, B, C, D, E, then actually most firms would, sim ha would have a similar sort of process. Then what we did is we said, well, okay, once we get these youngsters, why don't we put them around real role models? So role models that they could look at, people that look like them, people that grew up in the sort of same neighborhoods as them, that they could look at and say, well, listen, if you can do it, why can't I do it, right? And then the other thing that I found through my own journey and what I started observing very, very early on in youngsters was they felt so inspired when you brought them into Canary Wharf, for example. Now, to a lot of people, that will seem like, really, that's inspiring. And the answer is yes, because the number of times young people have said, because of where the locality is, that they can see Canary Wharf, for example, from their bedroom window, but they don't even know, quote, unquote, what those people do over there, right? So, what, we, what, what I believe is that if you bring those three things together, real role models, access to inspirational locations, and then coaching of the practical skills that we know that they're not taught at school, then what you could do is you could take young people on a real journey and a journey which would lead to life-changing outcomes. Now, Monique, a moment ago you asked about how much of this was a plan, how much of it was following your nose, right? So. I was really lucky because that boy, Joshua, the one that said, are black people allowed to come to Canary Wharf? In that first year, he actually got a five-year apprenticeship at EY. And 
when when he rang me and I answered the phone and he told me the news, I remember, I remember I'm, I, I was in my bedroom where I am right now. And I remember crying because not only because of what he'd achieved, but because it was the affirmation that I needed. And I'm not going to lie. I did need that affirmation that this thing could work. And I was so lucky I got that result for want of a better term. Because as I say, not only did it work for him, but what it did for me, he'll never know. It told me that everything had conspired to help me, to tell me that Nilesh, you can do this. And then to top it off, I went to see his mum. And I met this, you know, picture, I met this 60-year-old Nigerian lady in a Starbucks and a Starbucks in Stratford. Um, and, you know, she held my hands and she cried. and. You know, she was blessing me. She was telling me that at church, all the mums had gathered around Joshua to say to Joshua, you know, can you inspire my child and get my kid to do and to learn from you and make something of himself or herself? And what it showed me is how powerful this work could be for an entire community. And as I say, it gave me the affirmation that this, this was the life that I wanted to live. Yeah. So how important is it then for kids or anybody to know that the story can be rewritten? Absolutely, right? Absolutely, Monique. It is important, isn't it? Because if I think to myself, I made a complete and utter punt, right? So, you know, I remember having to literally beg schools to take me, to give me a chance on both maths and on I can, you can too, right? And let's be honest, if I had no results of any way, shape or form in that first 9, 12, 15 months, I'm talking none at all, then there's every likelihood that I would have conceded, right? Um, now, I think, as I say, for me, what it showed me is that this is something that I could do. And also the other thing that happened, Monique, in the background, was, you know, I was presenting to senior audiences. And for example, when, when you and I first met, that, that presentation that I did and you were in the room, you know, that was in that first year in this sort of 12 to 18 month trial period that I described earlier, right? And I looked at the reaction, for example, in you, in your other sort of senior peers. And I remember thinking, this story really resonates. I remember when Joshua landed his job, because of the work that I was doing, which was still very much in its infancy, I won the EY have a global award called Better Begins With You. And I won the EMEA um, International Award. And Joshua and I went to, you know, went to Germany to present to 28 of the most senior partners of EY across EMEA. And again, even in that room, Monique, the reaction was electric right um and all of these things were telling me what, what what as i said they were positive affirmations that this thing could work you know um and so it went from just being this you know this sort of warm glowy fuzzy it feels good to yes it feels good and it as i said it definitely feels like a life worth living but i could see the reaction that it had on 
you know, comfort Akin Sao and so Joshua's mum, I could see the, the reaction that it had on, you know, senior folks like yourself, Monique, when you were at EY or, you know, the, 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 the most senior partners at EY were so engaged with wanting to have this, this conversation and they encouraged me and they pushed me to do more and more and more. And so, yeah, I needed all of that to tell me that this was something that I could pursue long term. And, you know, it's, it's now all that I do work in the community. Incredible. So you're still at EY, you're part time. You talk there about how they've been, they've wanted to hear more and you won this international award. How have they been supporting the work that you're doing? I mean, you know what, credit where it's due, right? They've been absolutely brilliant to me. Um, yeah, so my, I, I actually don't have an EY role at the moment. So my role at EY, so the part time that I'm there, I'm still paid by EY for for now four days a week. Um, but all of my time that I, 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 I am paid for is me working in the community through the, through the I Can, You Can Too umbrella. Um, and, you know, lots of people look at me and go, that, well, that's unbelievable. Well, yes, it is, because, you know, essentially I've got the dream job, right? So I work for a big four and that comes with its you know, privileges in terms of access and, you know, having a, you know, stellar brand name on your CV in terms of opening doors, etc. But I spend 100% of my part time um, working with children, working with companies, working with the community, all in this sort of social mobility, social injustice, inequality type space. So, yeah, that's what I do mm -hmm. for EY. So you actually created your own job basically <laughs> yeah yes but you've got to put in the work to do that right you talk about taking a punt and giving yourself 12 months 18 months the jury's out on whether Hemel was consulted or not but you had to be <laughs> you had to be in the arena to be showing up and doing the work in order for that to turn into a paid job opportunity yeah, so look, that's absolutely right. Um, I've 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 not ever worked as hard as I work now, and I suppose and and Monique, this will resonate with you personally, right? It doesn't feel like work, does it? So, you know, when you're doing the thing that makes you feel alive, it doesn't feel like work, and I'm the same, right? So, but yeah, absolutely, I've had to obviously, you know as I said, graft, grind, back myself. And, you know, I'm going to, I suppose I'm going to refer to something which in our circles, people don't talk about a lot, which is having faith. Um, you know, I'm a spiritual guy and I've always believed in something bigger than me. And, you know, I, I'm a real big believer that you know, if you really, really go with your heart, I 110% believe that the work that I do is the right work. It's necessary. And the analogy that I've often used is when you talk about children and you talk about them just as children, it's very easy to make conclusions and, and to walk away. But if you substituted those children for your own child and your child said, but I'm black, am I allowed to come to Canary Wharf? Or you saw young people saying, listen, Nilesh, I've never had work experience. 
how am I ever going to get a job? And yet they've got all eights and nines at GCSE. If that was your child, you'd do everything to change that, right? So what I'm doing, I fundamentally and wholeheartedly believe in. And, you know, I'm, I, I remember once, and it's a translated quote, but maybe there's an English version of it already, but those that can see the invisible can do the impossible. And, you know, I see faith, I see conviction, I see complete and utter trust in what I'm doing. And the rest of it, you know, I've just rolled with it. You know, we've tried to do everything that we do, which is right for the kids. And here we are. I'm surrounded by, so there's probably 150 odd people that volunteer their time. And when I talk about 150 people volunteering their time, I'm talking partners, I'm talking surgeons, I'm talking architects, I'm talking Olympians and professional sportsmen and women, right? When those types of people buy into what you're doing and then come and work with you and you see them operating at a complete grassroots level with kids, right? Um, almost leaving their ego and their status at the door and working with these young people with a real desire to help them change the outcome of their lives, you know, you can't help but feel that you're on the right path. <sighs> a lot of people talk about finding work with meaning, finding their purpose and not being able to connect with that or perhaps feeling dissatisfied. And I think what's really powerful about what you've just described is that that chance encounter with Joshua that, yeah. you know, was part of a moment in time that loads of other things were happening and it was this, you know, almost this perfect storm. The, the point is you had that encounter with Joshua whilst being at your old school presenting a presentation called If I Can Do What You Can Too, you were moving towards something bigger than you and those sorts of encounters and opportunities I believe happen when you're rubbing up against what you're meant to be doing you know you talked about never working harder before but it doesn't feel like hard work because you're doing something that you believe so passionately in and which is such important work but importantly is connected and, and aligned and in alignment with who you are rather than working against your true nature yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that that I looked at, Monique, when I was preparing is one of your questions was around, actually, just bear with me a second. Let me just get the wording right. Um, was What was it about your previous story that made you want to rewrite? And the answer that I've written that helped me shape my thinking was to your point that you've just articulated beautifully there, Monique, which is actually it was less about my previous story, but it was absolutely about it all felt like as you called it the perfect storm about me acting in a way that aligned to who I always knew I already was right so rather than being pushed from my previous story I just couldn't resist the pull of what was always in my heart anymore I just couldn't resist it anymore right so you can argue I is two sides of the same coin and yes it is but to your point you know I think I think this was about me really, really sitting back and asking myself, not not what is it that you want to do, but how do you make this happen, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that that's all this is, right? I've just made happen 
what when I now look, so I'm 40 now, and, you know, there's moments of my life that I look back at and I think all of that was already evident there. Um, and, you know, this is just about me acting in line with who I am and who, you know, who, who I was born to be. Now, that sounds like a really grandiose statement. I don't mean it like that, right? I mean it in a, for me, working with young people, working with poverty, working with injustice um, has always resonated with me. It's the thing that brings a tear to my eye. It's the thing that I would do for free. It's it's the reason that I believe that I was put on the planet. Um, and, you know, it's, as I said earlier, right, it's the thing that makes me want to live my life. And I can't see myself doing anything different. So let me ask you a slightly provocative question. At the at the top of the interview, we were talking about, you know, these, this idea of success that you had inherited or, or been fed by your parents. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, I've certainly been in a career that on the outside looked great and shiny, but over yeah. time felt less and less good, which is why I, I took the decision to leave and start my own thing. In doing this work with these kids and getting them inside these institutions, these shiny corporate offices, working with people who have privilege and fancy job titles, etc., how are you not reinforcing the idea that the pursuit of success and wealth is the path out? Okay, so it's a really, really interesting question, right? And the way I answer this is always what I'm saying to those kids is that they can be anything that they want to be, right? So let me give you an example. And and, and this is a really cool way of demonstrating an outcome, right? So there's a girl that we've worked with for the last three years. This girl was not in the best of places, but what she did know is that she wanted to be a lawyer. And... She knew she wanted to be a lawyer, but what she said to me is that she just knew absolutely no way of how to make that a reality, right? So what I can, you can too tries to do is to give young people, oh, by the way, this girl is now studying law at a, at a Russell Group University. And in her own words, if she hadn't been through the program, she doesn't think that she'd have ever got close. Um, so... Your question's a really interesting one, um, Monique, because I've often asked myself, if this if this is a career that eventually became something that I didn't want to do, how and why is it right for me to prepare and help prepare youngsters to go into those same careers, right? The difference is that I've lived it and I had a cho- I, 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 I had a choice to leave. To me, it feels unfair when young people say, because of my postcode or because of where my parents are or because of the school not teaching me, I don't even have a chance of getting in. That's the bit that we're trying to rewrite. Yeah. That's the work that you do, right? It's not about holding these institutions up as the pinnacle of where people should be aiming. It's about equaling access. They should be able to decide themselves if they want to do that work or not, not have the odds stacked against them. Yeah, so we did, over the summer, we helped a FTSE 100 company. We gave them, 
you know, several sessions of advice on designing their apprenticeship. And the direct, the national director for apprenticeship said to me, Nilesh, what can we do in return? And I said, I would like out of your 25 places next year, I would like you to give five opportunities for our youngsters. And she said, what you mean? Give them, give them, you know, give them a slot. And I said, absolutely not. Right. But what I want you to give them is a chance to interview. Right. Because ordinarily, young people like this won't get a chance to even come and speak to you. So what I'm asking you to do is give them a chance. You know, if your industry, if your role is something that they want to do, then give them a chance because at the moment, the way your apprenticeship is designed, you won't even go and speak to those schools. So I'm saying to you, let them have a chance. Right. And I've often looked at my own journey, Monique, and it's been a privilege. I know I didn't necessarily enjoy it and I felt out of place, et cetera, et cetera. But I have learned so much. Right. Being around the folks at KPMG, at EY, Santander, etc. You know, you're around slick, top end professionals. Right. And I've learned so much from them. So, you know, having been through that, you know, there's stuff that I've learned, you know, stuff that you obviously know massively, Monique, you know, because given you've been there yourself and you'll be applying those skills and just that way of operating um, in your day to day job now. Right. Even though it's your own business. So that training, you know, having had that opportunity, I'm hugely grateful for. I suppose I'm just applying it to a different sphere now. Mm, no, I, I agree 100%. The, the business that I run now and the way that I operate as a professional was absolutely shaped by the experiences that I had, um, you know, if, uh, with my p- previous employer, that you are working with some of the highest caliber people in the financial services industry. Everybody's on their game, intelligent, educated, hardworking, relentless. I mean, it's a really good playground to cut your teeth. And and also there are some fantastic, I don't want us to be, and I know that we're not used to work at EY, it's not to denigrate people that have successful corporate careers and get all the way to the top. That is absolutely a, a, a valid and worthy pursuit for sure but if you want more um you know there's an opportunity there to explore different things and follow where your gut leads you and your gut has led you to some extraordinary places yeah 100 percent. and you know as i say very very regularly i'm living my dream this is this is the most beautiful chapter of my life um and it's going to be the longest because I can see me doing this for the rest of my days. Um, you know, being with young people, the, the 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 team around me, the volunteers, the mentors around me, the kinds of opportunities that we get. Um, you know, they're incredible, and and you know, I absolutely love it. And to your point a moment ago, you know, I have huge respect for people that make it to the top of you know, the likes of EY, it takes so much sacrifice, so much hard work. And, you know, they're absolutely at the pinnacle of their game. I suppose for me, I just wanted to play a slightly different game, but hugely grateful for the stuff that I picked up in my 15 years of, you know, front end being around people like you, Monique, you know, Um, 
yeah, it was fantastic. So what are you seeing in terms of the response of big business and what they're trying to do to 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 work with this, not because it's tokenistic or because it looks good in a CSR report, but being moved to make a difference because it, it, they want to, it's the right thing to do when no one's looking? Yeah, I think I think what I'd like to focus on is the latter. I think... There's a whole bunch of genuinely good people out there um, that that buy into the narrative that where we are is unacceptable. We should not be today be hearing children say things like, am I allowed to come to Canary Wharf because I'm black? It doesn't matter who you are. I can't. I haven't seen many people that aren't moved by that and not only moved by it with a momentary um, I don't know, tear in their eye or a like on social media, but moved such that, you know, we have over 100 people volunteer their time, you know, week in, week out, um, Monique. And I am seeing a massive shift in it because honestly, 20 years ago, when I joined the industry, you know, that that young spring chicken walking in with his brown suit, not knowing how to use his knives and forks, that that feels a world away, you know, that feels like a lifetime ago. Um, and I think it's testimony, right, that companies, and, 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 and as I said earlier, right, you know, for EY to help me and give me the space to make this my job is proof, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, EY is a leading edge, you know, frontline A1 corporate. And, you know, I've seen it with people like HSBC Private Bank, Funnily enough, a year ago, I did a talk there and two out of their three country heads now work with me on a regular basis. And over the summer, they created their own program. And that's something that we're doing together. Um, I think about people like Cambridge University who have been in touch voluntarily to say, Nilesh, you know, bring a coach load of kids here. We'll give them a tour. We'll give them access to the buildings, the courses, whoever they want to talk to, because we think this is the right thing to do. So there is a real shift. And it's, if you know, whether it's about time or not is irrelevant. Um, and do some people do this for the CSR? And is it performative? Again, Monique, you know, I'd rather focus on the fact that there's a growing number of people that are doing this for the right reasons. and. You know, I can, you can too is front, front and center um, with so many cool people, and you know, I think, I think it's all moving in the right direction. So, if somebody's listening to this and they are feeling that voice, which or, or hearing that voice and feeling those feelings, which I felt and heard, and you felt and heard. They've got no idea where to start. They are probably a little bit disconnected, maybe a little bit terrified. What would you say to that person? I would say, ask yourself, you know, what is it that you think you were put on this planet to do, right? Um, I know it sounds philosophical. I know it sounds spiritual, but what is it that makes you feel alive, right? What is it that as I said earlier, speaks to your soul, brings a tear to your eye, 
what would you do for free? Okay. Um, and what I do is I'd say, cut out the noise and really spend some time reflecting on it. I would say, get rid of this belief that purpose is some magical, mythical land that's reserved exclusively for these elevated souls. Because clearly it's not because, you know, I'm in that space, so it definitely isn't. Um, but, you know, I say, what is it that you care about? And, you know, mine is children. If yours is the elderly, if yours is, I don't know, supporting people with disability, um, you know, if you're, if you're female and you care about the female and STEM agenda, for example, right? What is it? And then start, right? So... A phrase that I use often is you've got to start by starting, right? Um, and do it in a safe way. So start with 5%, right? So maybe a couple of hours a week, you know, go and volunteer for an organization that already operates in that space. Um, go and meet people who are working in, in, you know, doing that, whatever that thing is already. Join them, right? Um, and give it a real good go. What is it and then start? I think that is so important. And I did exactly the same thing in terms of just trying to tune in with what's important to me, what am I interested in, what feels good, and noodling on that. I mean, I noodled on it for a good six to nine months before I figured out exactly what I wanted to do. And even the figuring out exactly what I wanted to do was just that I wanted to do something different. It's not about aiming for the sort of the end point. It's just about starting. Um, and I think another important point that you made there, which I really want to underline, is start in a safe way. And particularly now with what's going on in the world, I wouldn't want to encourage anybody to be reckless financially or to, you know, take a massive jump, um, you know, in a way that isn't planned for or well considered. But just start and play and experiment and dip your toe in and try something of the size and then mm, that's not quite it maybe it's this uh volunteering working with organizations that are doing the stuff that that excites you and that you want to get closer to i think that's awesome advice what is planned for you guys for the remainder of this academic year and 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 coming up in the future as well um so I think where we've accepted that this year will probably be all virtual. Um, you know, we mm -hmm. had to, over the summer, we planned for a normal, so when I say normal, I mean taking the kids to, to a session at EY, then to Barclays and then to a link laters and whatever, you know, that is hugely inspiring. But this year we know that we can't do that. So you know, what we've done is really taken the opportunity to say, actually, if we're doing it virtually, we think we can have more sessions. So usually we have one session a month across an academic year. But this time what we're doing is we've doubled that. Um, in order to, to support the young people, we've created a new pod structure. So where the young people are then, you know, we'll have a headline session. For example, actually, Monique, you're doing personal, you're doing a session with personal branding very, very soon for us. Um, I am. But after you've done you after you've done your awesome bit, you know all the kids will go and break off into small sort of pods where you know they can discuss amongst themselves um, your content. How are they going to apply it? Just a 
this was our way of making sure that we're close to our youngsters and we're able to speak to them regularly because a lot of them are going through a lot of difficulty and a lot of difficulty mentally. Um, so this is about trying to create small communities to look after them. Um, I can you can too, um, since COVID began, has got involved in sort of a little bit more what I would call humanitarian work. So we've leveraged our brand and, and, and the profile that we do have to get the likes of M&S and Aldi and Lidl, Boots, etc., to help us provide, you know, daily food parcels and daily um, hygiene essential parcels to young people that need it. Um, and we're in the process of designing our own um, hot meals program. So this Christmas, we're going to do a hundred hot meals every day um, for the two week holiday. So you know, it's it's evolving, right? And as I said earlier. Um, you start and then new things come along and you kind of go, yes, that's definitely something that I want to do. And you get involved in it again. You know, I think it will be awesome. Whatever we do this year, um, you know, we've got a bunch of hungry kids. We've got a bunch of awesome folks that want to help these young people. Um, and, you know, I'm excited about what we'll do this year. Incredible stuff, Nalesh. So where can people find out more about what you've got coming up this year and your work in general? And how can they find out about getting involved too? The, the best place to get in touch is either through the website um, where you can read up a little bit more about what we're doing and most importantly, read some of the really cool outcomes and read the stories of the children in their own words, which is super cool. Um, that's www.icanucan2.co.uk. And, you know, if any of the work that we're doing sounds interesting, you know, you want to get involved, you have some expertise that I can learn from and, you know, we can, you know, we can incorporate into our program, then please connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I'm so passionate about the work that you do and I love the way that you have rewritten your story over and over again. You're doing things on your terms and you're also helping others to rewrite their story too. So thank you so much. You know, I just wanted to say that I'm really, really grateful um, again to you for you giving me the chance and giving me the opportunity on your, on your rewrite platform. Um, and I think it's extra special because, you know, I know you really well, you so generously volunteer your your time with the program and I know you've worked very closely with us and and with the young people right and you know you're one of the most talented you know hard-working and slick professionals I've ever met um and you know I'm just really really grateful thanks Monique I really appreciate it well thank you for that I'll pay you later for that <laughs> um I really appreciate it cheers Nilesh I'll speak to you soon Thanks, Monique. Bye-bye. The Rewriters is produced, written and presented by Monique Shaw, original artwork by Kiana Perry and original music by DJ Cinnamon.